Welcome to Reimagining Liberty, a show about the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical political, economic, and social freedom. I'm Aaron Ross Powell. I've spent my entire career as what you might call a professional liberty advocate. But the last six or seven years have forced a lot of rethinking on my part about how best to discuss these ideas in the evolving political landscape. The fundamental case for freedom, grounded in shared dignity and mutual respect, remains strong. But it feels like Americans, and much of the rest of the world, have proven more willing to reject it recently. Liberalism is ceding ground to the base desire to use power to reward friends and punish enemies. To help me get a handle on how things have changed, where we stand now, and where it all might be headed, I'm joined today by David Bowes, Distinguished Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute, and my boss for the 13 years I spent at Cato. Before we jump in, I want to remind you that you can get every episode of Reimagining Liberty two weeks early, along with other perks, by becoming a supporter of the show. Head to reimaginingliberty.com slash subscribe to learn more. Now, here's my conversation with David Bowes. The last six or eight years have changed the American political landscape quite a lot. How have they impacted making the case for liberty? Well, I always figure if I knew how to make the case for liberty, I'd have been doing it all along. Um, And apparently, I haven't been doing it well enough because we don't have enough libertarians. Um, To me, I guess I would say the main thing that I see changing in the last six years or so is that for 34 years at the Cato Institute, I was focused on how do we advance libertarianism in opposition to conservatism and welfare state liberalism and maybe socialism. Um, But now I feel like the first task is to defend and promote liberalism, a broader concept um, against illiberalism on left and right. And that's around the world, but also here in the United States. And it seems to me that the change has been mostly driven by Donald Trump that we have much less of a consensus on basic liberal ideas, individual rights, limited government, markets, uh, markets relatively unfettered by um, government pressure and government corruption government by consent of the governed, freedom of speech, all of those things. And we got a president who, as you may recall, in January 2016, I wrote that the two big problems with Trump are that he engages in more racial and religious scapegoating than any American politician since George Wallace, and that he is a would-be autocrat who says, I'm the only one who can fix it. I'm going to ride in like a man on a white horse and fix everything. And it, it's, it's not exactly bragging to say that was pretty prescient because it was pretty obvious, but that is exactly what happened. And the shocking thing to me was how many people um, went along with that. Either they liked those things or they liked tax cuts enough to be not moved by those things. And so a lot of people I would have regarded as at least 
Reaganite classical liberal conservatives just rolled over for this very un-Reaganite, illiberal politician. Even a lot of libertarians um, were more sympathetic to him than I thought they should be. And then on the other side, it seemed to me that liberal Democrats, instead of saying, man, we can get 60% of the vote against this guy, he's such a dangerous extremist, decided that he's so bad, we can indulge all our own worst instincts and we can still beat him. And we got a rise of avowed socialists on the uh, Democratic side. Not, Not most Democrats, of course, but definitely more talk of socialism than there had been. And then the Democratic voters picked the most moderate presidential candidate, the one they thought would surely beat Trump. And then they elected him and then he starts to govern like Bernie Sanders. Um, So just making the general case for a liberal society uh, seems like the highest responsibility right now. How much of the embrace of what Trump represents by people that we had thought of as our allies is because of, I guess, not recognizing what he is. You know, like I think one of the things that frustrated me during especially the early Trump years was a desire to kind of treat him as another normal president who happened to have, who might have some policies we agreed with, who might have some policies we disagreed with, but was fundamentally the same thing as it happened before, but maybe with, you know, more caustic rhetoric versus, as you wrote in that piece years ago, representing an actual kind of authoritarian attitude and turn. So there was like a either willful or unwillful naivete about the fundamental difference there. So there's that possibility of not really seeing what he is or not wanting to see what he is versus the the kind of authoritarianism that he represented, which was often just like, I want to use the state to punish the kind of the people on the cultural side I don't like was a big driver of it, was always present. It was just not acceptable to come out and say it or embrace it until there was someone in this high position of power who you could latch yourself onto. Well, I guess I I hope that none of the people I really regarded as allies have succumbed to the idea that, you know, as long as the state is there, let's use it to pummel our adversaries. Uh, although a lot of people that we regarded as a broader tent that we might be part of, um, Reaganite conservatives, in this case, not the free speech liberals that I also consider to be part of our bigger tent, but some of those people did. I do think among libertarians, um, there was a lot of not seeing him as a fundamentally different kind of politician. I would find on Facebook, friends would say, oh, all politicians lie. All politicians violate the Constitution. Presidents have done this before. Um, What about the vulgar corrupting language corroding our society that he uses? Oh, yeah. Remember when Biden said Mitt Romney was going to put blacks back in chains? Um, So there was always something. And 
there's a truth to that. Jonathan Rauch wrote an article early on saying what makes an authoritarian president or something like that. And he listed a whole bunch of attributes and then said, well, Kennedy did that. Well, Reagan did that. Well, Bush did that. Um, so his argument was it's the totality doing all of these things that lets you know you're in the presence of something different. For libertarians and free market conservatives, um, I think it a lot of it came down to having always thought of the left as the enemy. And the left can be anybody from Stalin to Bill Clinton, but they are the enemy. And even though we were always critical of Reagan and Bush and McCain and Romney, um, there was still this sense that the left is the enemy. And so the left hates Trump so much that we, we, we talked early on Back in the day, I used to read National Review, and National Review would talk about what they called the anti-anti-communist position. People who were not communists, but seemed more exercised by anti-communism uh, than by the phenomenon of communism. Um, and I think it's probably pretty clear that you read more hostile attacks on McCarthyism in the American media than on communism. Um, so there was anti-anti-communism, and then we saw what came to be uh, recognized as the anti-anti-Trump position. So I'm not exactly pro-Trump, but, but, but his enemies are saying things that aren't really true. Technically, he did not say this. Um, and also, what about what Biden said four years ago? And so there was always this pushback on the critics of Trump more than Trump himself. And I found, I had a few friends who took exception when I said, you know, why are you pro-Trump? I'm not pro-Trump. I said, but, but you respond to every criticism of Trump by rebutting it. One of the things that I noticed during that time, and I think it ties into this, is you mentioned the the fact that it was seeing the left as the primary enemy made it easier for people to drift in this direction. And one of the more distressing things that I noticed was how many people on the you know, fusionist, conservatarian, and libertarian side, when, when it became clear that the GOP was turning against those areas that libertarians might have once had agreements with them, so they turned against trade, they turned even harder against immigration. They often turned against free markets and, you know, wanting to punish companies for doing or saying things they didn't like and so on. Um, and then later on started, you know, explicitly embracing industrial policy. How much it became clear that the enemy being the left wasn't just economics, but was cultural, but was, I don't like the cultural left and represented by increased tolerance for LGBT. Um, it, it turned into kind of the anti-wokeism, but like how many people just like, we do need to stop the cultural left from changing our culture. And that that then became a reason to embrace 
uh, you know, kind of anti-freedom across the board. Well, some of that might be that what the left was doing changed from what it had been. That, you know, we used to say, and this goes back to the 70s and really the, the beginning of what I would call an organized libertarian movement, um, that libertarians agree with liberals on personal freedom and free speech issues and with conservatives on economic issues. And certainly by the, by the time of Trump's rise, but, but not after that, by the time it happened, there was a much stronger perception that you could not say liberals were better on free speech than conservatives. Um, there was all the talk about cancel culture, uh, people being berated by Twitter mobs, but also losing their jobs for saying things that were politically incorrect or later called unwoke. And we could debate, well, how big a phenomenon is that? How many people have to lose their jobs for what kinds of statements? Um, certainly one of the things that I noticed was people who took the position on gay marriage that Barack Obama took until 2012 um, were losing their jobs a few years later because they took Obama's recent position. Um, I'm glad that, that the culture and society moved in the direction of supporting gay marriage, um, something that Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton did not support in 2008 or until 2012. But I thought that the left began to get very censorious about that. Um, and I think the same thing is true, not so much with gay issues, which Trump kind of didn't you didn't do, and therefore I think a lot of conservatives have dropped. But the transgender issues, um, I think again there is a perception that for expressing any doubt about any aspect of transgender activist policy will get you Twitter mobbed and canceled. A the, edit, the, the editorial page editor of the New York Times was fired because he ran an op-ed by Tom Cotton. Now, it was an op-ed that made terrible arguments. Um, if I were an editor, I wouldn't run it. On the other hand, if I were the editor of the New York Times, I would feel that I'm supposed to have some diversity um, in the pages of the New York Times. So part of the response that the left is changing our society in a way we don't like is, I think, that the left is less libertarian in some ways than it was culturally a few years earlier. Um, but it's also true that the idea that you seize on the state is there to be used as a blunt instrument if necessary um, is something that I think in most cases Reaganite conservatives would not have been doing before Trump. And so I do... I. I feel that Trump, like Pandora it was, right, lifted the lid and all these monsters came out. And the question is, were they already monsters or were they led into monstrousness by uh, one charismatic political leader? And that may, be, that may be a question historians deal with in many countries in many eras. I mean, I think the 
the clear answer to that is a bit of both, or it's going to be different for different people. Um, that there were, I think, there've always been, there's always been a strong authoritarian strain in American politics that's been kept under check and has flared up at different times and so on. But then there are obviously people who were swayed by the political environment in this direction. And I mean, picking up on what you said about the left, I might, I would, I would quibble with some of the the characterizations about the extent of it or the targets of it. But it is true that, call it in the Obama years, the left had clearly had won the culture war, largely. And it was incredibly frustrating to watch them then decide that winning wasn't good enough, but that the the remaining enemies needed to be utterly vanquished. Um, and I bring up like the Masterpiece Bake Shop case all the time where this was, you know, an example of a single bakery refusing to bake a cake for a gay wedding was not actually inflicting any harm on anyone because there are lots of bakeries. You can go anywhere. There are lots of reasons you might not be able to get a cake from a given bakery and it doesn't harm you to not get it. But it was just this person has a view that we don't like and so they need to be punished I mean, in this case, directly via the state in this heavy-handed, you know, we're going to drive them out of business sort of way. And it was just so utterly unnecessary. And what outside of just kind of the unvirtuous behavior of wanting to beat down someone who isn't hurting anyone um, was that it was incredibly triggering to the tendencies among the right to want to grasp at power and fight back. Like it was, you know, the damage it did to the cause was enormous. And I don't, I to this day don't understand why the left thought, or I mean, it's not, the left didn't make this decision, but why, you know, like some people on the cultural left decided this was the right thing to do because it was obviously going to create this arms race. And then it does seem like we're in this position now where that arms race has become so embedded that both of the two sides basically are just want to use these mechanisms of violent power to not just fight back but punish each other and and the disarmament that libertarians have long recommended just seems like a much harder sell in the current environment yeah and a lot of people would would say to you um why were you shocked? We always told you the left didn't have any respect for individual freedom. And we always said, you know, if you make gay marriage legal, then everybody will be required to do it. And well, they're not all required to get gay married, but they are required to host gay weddings in their church park and uh, and do the photography for a gay wedding and, and do the uh, uh, uh and, and make a cake for a gay wedding. Do you remember around the time Masterpiece was happening, um, there was a report that someone had called around to like every pizzeria in Indiana asking if they would cater a gay wedding. And they found one that said, oh no, I don't think we would do that. And so then this is a national story. This pizzeria wouldn't cater a gay wedding. And gay people with a sense of humor said, gay people do not want pizza at their weddings. But but this little pizzeria was 
humiliated. I don't know if it went beyond that. Um, but it does then cause conservatives and maybe some libertarians to want to retaliate, not by simply limiting the power of the state to do that, but to use the power of the state to punish other people. And we see that particularly now in Florida with Ron DeSantis, who is so much more sober and intellectual and calm and I'm told uninspiring on the platform than Trump um, says, let's use the power of the state to hurt the Disney Corporation because they issued a mild statement of disagreement with our don't say gay law. Um, and conservatives, the good conservatives now think DeSantis is the alternative to Trump because he doesn't do too many mean tweets while he does mean things with the blunt instrument of state power. And he's a good example, the stuff that he's been doing of, I think, the way that a lot of people who at one time embraced the the rhetoric of liberty and supported pro-liberty things have, I guess, rationalized themselves support for fairly authoritarian policies, which I think DeSantis is every bit as authoritarian as Trump, um, is – you mentioned the Disney thing – is this idea that – Corporations have embraced a particular political viewpoint and are now using their their massive power in the marketplace to enforce that viewpoint. So it's not just that their Disney is expressing things, but that Disney is basically forcing us to go along with these viewpoints. Or the other place you see it is in like content moderation that these platforms have become like a danger to our freedom because they are excluding certain viewpoints by exercising their First Amendment rights to freedom of assembly. Um, and, and a lot of people who, I mean, a lot of even names in the libertarian movement have said the government needs to get involved in this stuff and stop it. But on this kind of quasi-freedom ground that that sounds very much like far-left arguments about corporate power – that these things have become so powerful that it is a fundamental freedom issue, which, I mean, from my perspective is kind of nuts because they're market actors and they can associate with who they want or they can express whatever they want and you can go somewhere else. You know, there's competition just like you can find another bake shop. But it's been interesting watching kind of these jury-rigged pro-liberty arguments for like DeSantis-style authoritarianism. Well, that's right, and there is a conjuring up of reasons that it doesn't violate our traditional conservative rules about state power. All large corporations in America have some kind of involvement with government. You can't very well avoid it. In Disney's case, you know, they had this special taxing district in Florida, and I don't know exactly why this was set up this way, and it's not clear if you destroy that that the taxpayers of California benefit or will be hurt, but that gave them something to grab onto. We're going to take away their special rights. And apparently there are a whole lot of other entities in Florida that have these special rights, but those have not been speaking out against the governor. 
even mildly as Disney did. And that's also true, as you say, about social media. I say to some of my friends who think, you know, social media shouldn't be allowed to censor or whatever, listen, the New York Times has been censoring me for 40 years. I send them articles and they don't run them. And should there should they be required to run them? And everybody recognizes that's absurd. Of course, you can't tell a newspaper. They have to run your opinions or dissenting opinions generally. Um, there is something that feels different. If I don't if I can't get published in the Washington Post, I can get published in the New York Times or maybe the Wall Street Journal or even the Washington Times. Or back in the day, we would send op-eds out to the Chicago Tribune or the Boston Globe, and you'd get published somewhere, and it's clearly not the same thing. You get in the New York Times, a lot more people notice than if you're in the Boston Globe or the Washington Times. But if you are banned from Twitter, it would feel like you've been banned from the national public square. And so I can see how people feel that that's different. Now, we've talked about how MySpace used to be regarded as a natural monopoly that could never be challenged. And now I don't even know what MySpace was. Um, Facebook clearly kicked it out of the ballpark. But now I understand people are leaving Facebook. Um, People say they're leaving Twitter, but we'll find out if they really do because... I think everybody who wants to chatter to the world does want to be on Twitter. Um, But a lot of these things have some angle. And then you will also hear libertarians saying, well, Amazon used eminent domain to be able to build a warehouse somewhere. Therefore, they're a state actor. And and, And that, as you say, is an old left liberal position that if the government helped you in any way to build your factory or guaranteed purchases of your vaccine or even more minor things than that, well, then you're a state actor and you should be subject to democratic control. Yeah. And I think the problem, which I think you mentioned in passing before, is the the selective choosing of who to punish based on these. Like, it's one thing if you're like, I think companies get too many tax breaks and so we should take away tax breaks. Um, it's quite another to say, I don't like tax breaks, but I'm only going to take them away from this company that's pissed me off for cultural reasons. And that seems to be a a huge part of it is just – and that's that hook of we can, we can justify this on pro-freedom grounds. It's similar to – I remember when um, – when the Supreme Court decided in favor of gay marriage, there were a lot of the kind of the far right libertarians who now represent like the Mises caucus were opposed to the decision and their opposition to the decision was obviously, and it's now become very clear based on their rhetoric that they just were anti-gay, but they were like trying to concoct principled libertarian reasons to oppose it. So it's like, well, the state shouldn't be involved in marriage anyway. And so giving – including more people in this state-run marriage thing is just expanding government. And so we shouldn't – and it was – I mean it was a transparently bad argument, but it's interesting watching like trying to do this. Yes, I do remember those arguments from some very respectable people. Um, and it does not make any sense and you know, you you could – 
You could also say to those people, had you ever mentioned that you were opposed to state marriage before it was proposed that it be extended to gay people? Well, no, but you know, I was, but no, I never mentioned it. And did you get a state marriage license? Well, yes. Um, so you're not really all that opposed to it because you didn't need a state marriage. I mean, you, what did you need your marriage license for? To get government benefits or something? Um, well, that's exactly what we're talking about here. And I do think there is a strain there of libertarians who will respond. And, and, and you know, this could have been applied to race. I don't know that it was. I don't want there to be any government schools. Therefore, why would I want to extend government schooling to black people? Um, we couldn't find anybody today who would, who would admit to ever having had such a thought. Um, and I'm not sure it was brought up at the time, but it's exactly the same thing. Um, so yes, grasping at straws to find a way to oppose whatever is perceived to be the position of the left or to justify an actual prejudice that you are operating on. So how do we approach, I mean, you and I have both dedicated our careers to advancing this cause of liberty. And we've watched ups and downs in that. You've seen more than I have. And it seems – it does seem pretty grim right now, it, partly because of the the general illiberal trend in the electorate and partly because the people – a lot of the people who we thought of as allies have drifted in those directions as well. Uh, what do we do? in an environment like this like you said we need to be defending liberalism but how do you how do you set about defending liberalism and making the case for respect each other don't try to beat each other over the head live and let live and just embrace a, a, a cosmopolitan changing world that freedom unleashes well, the bad news for America is that a lot of conservative organizations have gone in this direction. Um, we keep saying, well, the good news for Cato is that all these other organizations that used to use libertarian rhetoric don't anymore. And so, hey, that should mean more uh, funders and potential employees and so on coming to us instead of those organizations. Maybe there's something to that. Um, I do still believe that there are a lot of normal people who actually do believe in live and let live. They don't want to pay any more taxes. They don't care who people marry. Um, now, sometimes at the, at the margins, there are questions, you know, I don't care if a guy wants to wear a dress. Um, however, I don't want a guy wearing a dress in my daughter's locker room. So there are things that have to be worked out in areas like that. But I do believe that there are a lot of Americans who do still have uh, what we could call fiscally conservative and socially liberal attitudes, or maybe it is more just live and let live. I don't see why people get exercised about Disney. I don't see why people care who's on Twitter, all those sorts of things. We want to find those people, and it may be harder to find them because there's so much uh, there's there are so much more vocal people on both sides of the budding illiberal 
argument um, that it's hard to find the people we're looking for. Um, and since neither party is nominating candidates who really appeal to that, um, what do those people do politically? I mean, look at the people of Brazil. They had to choose between a socialist who was corrupt and a guy who seemed to kind of like a fascist. Um, and they split 51-49 on that. Um, we have that same problem here in the United States that we can't seem to get nominated the kinds of candidates we would like. Um, one of the reasons, one of the things that suggests, of course, is that um, there are not that many people who actually do want the live and let live position because that's not who's getting nominated in both parties. Or it could be that our the nomination process is that primaries drag candidates to the extremes because it's only the most extreme members of the parties who show up for primaries. Yeah, that might that might be right. And it may also be these days that there is a, you know, these days the Republican establishment is Trump and his supporters. And I think people who have been particularly close to Trump ought to be um, ostracized from polite society. But that gets to be very difficult when it's pretty much the entire conservative establishment and now the entire Republican establishment. What do we do about partisanship in this environment? Because one of the things that I have noticed as I talk with people making the case for liberty is they assume that I am of the right, uh, that I am a Republican, I am a conservative, because they assume that libertarians are of the right, Republicans, conservatives, Republicans who want to smoke pot. Um, and and so they read a lot of, you know, as they get increasingly, I think, and correctly disgusted with the American right. Like, so people who want to defend our liberalism but are disgusted with the American right, it feels like libertarians have start off at a disadvantage in those conversations because they assume that we are representatives of that. And part of that is, I mean, I'll argue like our own fault because we did associate more historically with Republicans than Democrats um, and, in, you know, go after certain, like put more energy into certain issues versus others and so on. But that does seem to be given given the shift in in what the right represents um that seems to be a problem and it seems to be one that it's like it's hard to it's hard to have fruitful conversations when you're starting off everyone by saying like trying to defend yourself as no I'm not that yeah it's frustrating to be perceived as being on the right when we don't think we are that's always been the case and it's always been frustrating to me at least because Libertarians were out in front on gay rights long before Democrats and liberals were, were out in front on uh, drug policy, drug legalization before Democrats and liberals were, and they're still not really there, um, were always against the draft and against the war in a way uh, that Democrats have not consistently been. But we did also support rather untrammeled free markets. And that seemed to be what most people on the left really were interested in. I mean, we complain maybe the conservatives are more interested in the cultural stuff. When my book came out in 2015, so it was really just before 
anybody heard of Trump. I did something like five hours of NPR interviews about my book, local and national, and I don't think I ever got a caller who said, I like what libertarians say about gay marriage or drug laws or war. They all were about economics, poverty, the poor, the cokes, the environment. Um, so there was this seeming strong view that libertarians are not us. And so that's always been difficult. And it's also true. Libertarians have tended to be more friendly to conservatives, at least Reagan type conservatives, uh, than to liberals and people on the left. Um, donors to libertarian causes also give to Republican politicians. Um, and realistically, a lot of us libertarians, like in my generation, but maybe not just my generation, came from the right. I worked for YAF before I became what I hope is a consistent libertarian. Um, so that's what people see. And one response a lot of libertarians are going to give you is, well, that's because we, the fundamental basis of a free society is private property and free markets. If you don't have that, then you're not going to have the civil liberties and personal freedom that you want. And the left, everybody from Bill Clinton to Stalin, doesn't support private property and free markets. And that's why, yes, we are closer to the right. The other thing that strikes me about you say, oh, it's very frustrating. People think I'm on the right. I don't want to be thought of as on the right. I'm always having to dig out of this hole. About 49.5% of Americans are about to put the Republican Party back into power. I don't know for sure if it'll be 49% or 51%, but the point is, with the whole Republican Party in thrall to Trump, half the American people are still going to vote Republican. So it's not like the whole it's it's not like the whole world dislikes libertarians because they're on the right. It's only half the world. It happens to be the half that has more intellectual clout, more influence on ideas, more influence on the direction of society and politics, even if they don't win every election. Um, and it's those people, the people who do believe in free speech and peace and don't understand economics, that I've always wanted to try to explain why freedom is a consistent way of looking at the world. And if you like social evolution and people being allowed to do their own thing, you should like entrepreneurs being allowed to do their own thing and create the progress that allows gay people in rural areas to connect with each other on the internet, um, that allows people of any other outsider um, variety to be able to find each other. Um, capitalism produced all of that for us, and yet a lot of people don't seem to like that kind of capitalism. Well, and it seems an increasing number of people on the right don't like that kind of capitalism. Well, that's true too. Either. And that's, you mentioned the, how it's 49 to 51% of people um, might not dislike us because they think we're on the right. It's been interesting watching the conservative establishment and the, the kind of intellectual veins within American conservatism become 
quite explicitly anti-libertarian. Not not just in the sense of like their policies are, you know, they're drifting in these pro-industrial policy, pro-big government directions, but in actually naming libertarians by name and blaming us for the country's ills, which oof, having worked in – like it gives us too much credit. Um, we don't have that much influence unfortunately. But, um, but saying like it is actually this embrace of – liberty limited governments markets and so on that has brought conservatism low and what's needed is a return to populism and and that makes it i mean that makes it even harder because that seems to be the that's the intellectual epicenter of the american right to I, it's an open question whether that i don't think that has a lot of influence with the voters but i think the 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 Republican base is kind of at more of like a gut instinctual level embraces that sort of thinking too. Um, but that – I mean that leaves us basically like if the left doesn't like us because they think we're of the right and the right doesn't like us because they think we destroyed the right, who are we talking to? If we want to talk to kind of the intellectual, like the people who are setting the ideas that are part of the national conversation – well, of course, this does mean that to the extent there are people on the right who are traditional Reaganite conservatives, um, they ought to be gravitating more toward the libertarian world than um, the national conservative Trumpian world. The people who are trying to create an intellectual justification for Trump's prejudices and instincts um, – there ought to be people who don't like that and would be looking for an alternative. Unfortunately, some of the visible parts of the libertarian movement have now embraced Trumpian styles of communication, um, both the rudeness and the vulgarity and also the anti-liberal content. And so they have to find the right libertarians or they're not going to see an alternative to what's happening over there. But it's still true that the intellectual left, broadly speaking, does have more uh, intellectual influence and that does translate into the direction of society. And so I still do want those people to come to have a greater appreciation for markets. Now, there's an argument that a lot of them do have more appreciation for markets than we recognize. We've had both Jason Furman and Larry Summers speak at Cato in the past month, and both of them are clearly pretty good on a lot of microeconomic issues, precisely the kinds of things that Republicans are not often good about because they have big business and small business supporters who don't want actual free trade and deregulation. Um, so, it used to be that there actually were a lot of socialists and even some communists within the broad mainstream left. Not so much anymore, even with the recent talk. Um, it used to be that we had 70% tax rates, and Democrats are not proposing 70% tax rates anymore. Hardly any Democrat is proposing nationalizing the oil industry or anything like that, and I can remember that from the 1970s. So. In a lot of ways, 
Democrats have gotten less bad on government and the market, except in the very visible way of spending, 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 always spending more money, driving up the national debt. And that's the one big thing, I think, that libertarians will look at and say, obviously, the world is going to hell because we built up the national debt to an uncontrollable number. If you look at a lot of other things, it's not so bad. And both our left-wing opponents and our right-wing opponents have a kernel of truth to the claim that libertarians have created this modern world. Yeah, I'm thinking back to an episode of this show a while back that was intended to be a debate between a socialist and a capitalist. And so representing socialism was the academic Matt McManus, um, who describes himself as a socialist, and representing capitalism was Professor uh, Chris Freiman, uh, who argues for capitalism and has at length. And I, I encourage listeners who haven't listened to it to go back and do so, because it's a fascinating conversation in light of what you just said, because it was, I'm going to say it was less of a debate than I thought it would be going in, because there was much more agreement than I anticipated. And it was the kind of agreement that I think you were just talking about, that Matt, as a socialist, was not advocating state ownership of the means of production and uh, abolition of private property and so on, but was instead advocating welfare spending, spending on health care, and regulations to basically like empower workers, put workers on boards, things like that. But it, but was very much a proponent of the free market as, you know, like as corporations and market actors as wealth creation and so on. And I do think that is probably, that is representative of much more of the left. And even the ones who call themselves socialists probably look more like Matt McManus socialists than they do seize the means of production socialists. And when you talk about that, like kernel of truth, I think that's where that's a more heartening place to be as far as opportunities for conversation and persuasion because if you reject if you reject like the very notion of private property and market action as unjust evil whatever then it's hard to have a conversation about where to go from there with us market fundamentalists as we get called uh, but if it's more I think the markets are great, but here are some problems that they can't solve, and I think the government should step in and solve them. Then you can say, well, here's here's ways I think the market can solve them, right? And we may not agree, but that's a conversation that you can have. My worry is that for a lot of like talk, you, you look at a Josh Hawley or a Sarab Amari or other kind of luminaries of like the national conservative right, is that they their rhetoric is rejecting like the very idea of free markets because those markets enable people to basically live lives that run counter to the way that they would prefer. And that's a much harder conversation because our argument is you're damn right they enable people to live the kind of lives they want to live. Like that, in addition to the wealth, is one of the great benefits of markets is that people can pursue their own ends how they define those. And if you reject that – then it's awfully hard to have a meaningful conversation. The British journalist Samuel Britton wrote a wonderful essay um, 
40, 50 years ago called Capitalism and the Permissive Society, most of which is in my book, The Libertarian Reader. And one of the things that he talked about was how the the 60s notion of do your own thing actually implies market capitalism. And yet, he said, the, the advocates of capitalism and the advocates of do your own thing in the counterculture think they are enemies um, and they should not be enemies. And we've also talked about how, yes, the 60s were about personal freedom and exploring and, and, and sexual liberation and so on. And then the 80s were about economic liberation. But, you know, the same people were alive mostly in both the 60s and the 80s. And these both kind of opened up our society and our economy and gave us the modern world we have. And there are people who don't like either the 60s or the 80s. There are a lot more people who think they're still fighting the 60s or still fighting the 80s. Although even then, the conservatives usually, of course, get dragged along. They said a woman's place is in the home. Forty years later, they said... A woman with five children, one of them a special needs infant, could be vice president of the United States, and it's sexist to say otherwise. Um, even National Review used to oppose desegregation and civil rights. Now they are firmly supportive of Martin Luther King and his vision of a colorblind society. And they might be getting there with gay people, and so... Maybe in another 10, 20 years, they'll also be getting there with trans people. Uh, but they'll always be dragging. And there's, there's a Hayekian argument that, of course, you want some people in society resisting and saying, do you think you're going too far? Is that, is that really the direction our society wants to go? But the conservatives are correct to perceive that it has been going in the liberal direction. So then looking forward that next 10 to 20 years, because I'm going to say like the next five years look fairly grim. Uh, are you at all optimistic about the prospects for genuine and robust liberty? And what do you see as the path towards that, given the environment we find ourselves in now? Well, I am optimistic because I do believe, actually, that freedom works and socialism and authoritarianism don't, and they can't deliver the goods, and people do want the goods delivered, and that means material goods, but it's not just material goods. It is being able to uh, live your life as you choose. So I think that the long-term prospect for liberty is actually good, even though right now, Politically, we look around and we see, my God, the most likely Republican nominee for president is Donald Trump. And whoever the Democratic nominee is, is not going to be very attractive to libertarians. Um, but if you believe that the most immediate threat to ordered liberty in the United States is Trump and his election-stealing supporters, then you have to not want Donald Trump near power again. One thing that will change in the not too distant future is that Donald Trump himself will no longer be involved in public life. Um, 
I don't know what will change at that point. Will, will he have created many Trumps who pursue the same policies and the same culture war attitudes, or will there be sort of a reset back to normal republicanism? It's also concerning that in so many places around the world right now, including Russia and China, but not just there, authoritarian leaders seem to be entrenching themselves in power. And I don't know what we do about that. It may be that in our world of wealth and long lives, people are less likely to want to throw themselves onto the barricades to take down autocratic leaders. Does that make them uh, make it easier for them to stay in power? Does modern media make it easier for them to stay in power? Certainly in China, one of the reasons people don't revolt against the Chinese Communist Party is that it has brought about a billion people out of poverty, and people don't want to risk that. So in the United States, I think things will change. I think we may even be seeing some pullback from left-wing censoriousness, people being more resistant to that, and Trump and Trumpism will probably fade um, around the world. Uh, I think there might be more challenges that, that we don't yet know how to deal with. For us, I think making the best defense we can of libertarianism and liberalism generally is what we do. And if there are political organizers who know how to organize politically on behalf of that, which has not been obvious, um, then they should do that. Um, and otherwise, I've always thought this is fundamentally an intellectual battle. And so we should be fighting it intellectually. Thank you for listening to Reimagining Liberty. If you'd like to support the show, get every episode two weeks early, and have access to some other fun perks, head over to reimaginingliberty.com slash subscribe to learn more.